Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast with me, Mark Cribb. So finally, we have the nod. 4th of July it is. Boris has pressed the go button and across the country, operators and customers are excited to get started. It won't be easy. We're not out of the woods yet and millions of jobs are still at risk. But whatever the outcome, clearly the first thing we have to do is open the doors again, learn together and assess the correct level of both supply and demand. And I say all this, actually, somebody reminded me this week that I do need to remember that Scotland and Wales are on a different time trajectory. So in England, we're going first, and I'm sure you will be watching, and I will try and do better and remember where people are listening. Okay, so the media and the public, though, they seem to be behind us. We all want hospitality back in our lives, and we all recognise more than ever the importance of time with friends, with loved ones, or with colleagues, and hopefully we'll be more grateful than we've ever been for some time. On this week's podcast, I am chatting to Carl Chessel, who is the Business Unit Director at CGA, the Data and Insight Company. Now, I saw Carl talk at the hotel and restaurant show back in March, pre-COVID, and was really impressed by some of the insights and data that Carl and his team had collated. It was nice to see so many of the thoughts and impressions that I had of the sector, backed up by some scientific data and commentary. So I asked Carl at the time if he'd be happy to be a guest on the podcast at a future date, and as we approached the end of lockdown as we knew it, it seemed like the perfect time to put some data behind the theory of what reopening may look like. We actually go on a bit of a journey in this conversation, and it is worth noting that it was recorded about a week before Boris confirmed the 4th of July opening date, which we refer to a couple of times in our chat. And we start with some analysis of what was going on in hospitality pre-COVID. As a result of coming out of a period of political stalemate and uncertainty with regards to Brexit and a decisive election result, executive confidence levels in hospitality were the highest they had been for many years. Ironically, 77% of the sector were concerned about labour shortages, not the potential layoff of 2 million colleagues. We then touch on some of the data around consumer behaviour during lockdown and move on to what Carl and his team have seen in both the USA, China and other countries who are starting to reopen their doors. And then it's post-Covid and are there any clues as to what we can expect and what we should be focusing on as a sector. I personally was pleased that the consumer does not seem to be wanting a sterile operating theatre with everyone behind screens and masks. Personally for me that is not hospitality. Eye contact and big smiles are what are required to help people feel relaxed. As always for me it's about doing all the work with the systems and the processes back of house so that customers are and feel safe whilst front of house everything looks seamless and relaxed and we create environments where the customer can switch off for a while and spend some time with friends and loved ones. Carl gives out some advice on what he thinks operators should focus on and we agree to touch base again in a few months and see what we've all learned. To all of you listening, busy preparing to open your doors, best of luck. And to all of you listening, looking forward to visiting your favourite bar or restaurant or hospitality venue, please do us a favour and try and book ahead. Please be patient when you visit and please don't simply take pictures of any errors and plaster them all over social media. Please, please work with us as a sector and we'll all learn, improve and look after each other together. And remember... Please do me a favour. In return for this free, unsponsored podcast, just pick up the device you're listening on now, scroll down to the review button and hit five stars. It'll take just a few seconds, but it really helps me out by getting these conversations heard by more humans. Thank you, stay safe and enjoy the chat. Carl Chessel, uh, Business Unit Director at CGA. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this morning. Hugely appreciated. Uh, can you just tell me where in the world are you, Carl? Yeah, well, geographically, I'm in Stockport. So in my loft in Stockport. Um, weather looking a little bit miserable, it's fair to say. But uh, Yeah, yeah, the heat wave has finished. So you've got a, a, an office in the loft or is this just uh, you're, you're sat <laughs> next to your router? I appreciate we're, we're doing this remotely. But. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's an office. Um, we've adapted as a lot of people have had to adapt through this. Um, so it's a general storage stroke loft room 
um, stroke office, stroke sewing room that my wife uses. So it's it's multifunctional, um, but it does the job. Have you got kids, Carl? I have. I've got two young children. Yeah, so um, ah, so it's the perfect place to hide. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. Going through homeschooling um, yeah. at the moment is uh, is an interesting challenge. But I think yeah, definitely. Yeah. How you, how are you getting on? Have you nailed the maths or? Um, well the youngest is four so i'm okay, okay on the with the chance <laughs> yeah. um so yeah i'm doing okay on the maths i think luckily they're, they're relatively young um but it's just that they're missing out on the social side of things and yeah. our youngest is going back next week um all being well so um yeah hopefully some sort that's, of normality for him yeah that's good my son uh is is in the first year of secondary school and uh, bought me something the other day about a mask that had fallen over it was fun- fundamentally working out triangles and, and pythagoras and various bits and it, and it blew my mind so luckily yeah. i dived onto a very urgent call so i didn't look stupid um, <laughs> so um can you just explain you know i suppose you know what what is cga what do you do and what is a business unit director please carl yeah good question um so as a business um at cga we're a data insight company um, so, and we focus solely on hospitality. So we, we live and breathe and love the hospitality sector. Um, and in essence, um, there's lots of different things that we do, but it's all based around data. So it's not just our opinion on stuff. It's what consumers are telling us, what business leaders are telling us, what we can measure in the sector. So we track things like openings and closings. We track, track the performance of the sector. So many people will be familiar with things like a Coffee Beach business tracker which looks at um, the managed performance of the out-of-home sector. So sort of 60 operators representing around 13 billion of annual turnover. Um, but essentially, it's all around hospitality. In terms of what I do specifically as a business unit director, um, I and my team are focused solely on the operator space, um, also um, food suppliers to an extent, but it's mainly working with operators on a day-to-day basis. So um, the large pubcos, uh, casual dining uh, chains um, some of the late night sector as well but essentially it's all about hospitality amazing and i saw you uh chatting at a show in london which i think was was just before the lockdown february or march time it was the the hotel and restaurant show and uh, and you blew my mind with a, a phenomenal uh presentation and heaps of data and, and like you just said really it was it was sort of going from thinking to knowing it was quite good to see the amount of data that was out there that sort of backed up uh general thoughts and consensus so who who pays for you to uh collate all this exceptionally useful data <laughs> well i guess ultimately our clients i mean we we collate the data ourselves and obviously um our commercial model is to work with both operators and suppliers um for them to sort of buy into that insight some of the things they take in-house themselves um so we have a file of all licensed outlets in gb and suppliers, for example, want to know um, lots of information about those outlets to decide where to focus their sales activities. So they'll, they'll take files like that in-house. And we also do a lot of consultancy um, with clients as well, whether it be strategy pieces, or whether it be whereabouts to open, um, what they do with particular brands moving forward, how they evolve those brands. So there's actually a whole range of different pieces of analysis we do. But you know, ultimately, our client base is, is major suppliers and also um, key operators in the sector. Um, we work in GB, but we also have a team out in the US and in France and do you know, international work as well. So we increasingly have a global footprint in this hospitality space. Amazing. Okay. So some of this uh, stuff that you acquire, uh, I guess, if you're looking at a bespoke data and analysis, some of it you basically put out for free and you share it and you do webinars and some of it is sort of uh, behind a paywall where it's, it's bespoke for businesses. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah. So the the conference you saw me was mainly about us obviously sharing some of that insight. We also work with people like UK Hospitality, um, BBPA and, and try to support the sector with insights um, along those lines as well. Um, but essentially, yeah, we, we have events we do webinars. Um, we're passionate about the sector, so we like talking about it. Um, but there's a point then at which, obviously, if people want additional services, they, they come to us. So Coffee Peach, for example, is a free service for operators. They get to share their weekly sales performance, and we build an industry view. So they can benchmark their own performance in the context of that. Um, but there's other things if people want to do more detailed analysis with their EPOS data compared to competitor sets, if they want to look at how they're pricing in Manchester versus other operators, then that's where typically um, we'll, we'll work on a more ad hoc consultative basis and there will be some charges. So, yeah. Right. Okay. And, and it's a business that's been operating for quite some time, I think, isn't it? It is, yeah. So over 25 years. So it started just tracking, I say just, um, quite a complex role of, of understanding where uh, all the licensed outlets were, 
which ones were opening, which ones were closing, and lots of information about them. So whether they've got a beer garden in the current environment, whether they're doing delivery, what's the quality of those outlets, things like that. So that's where the business started. Um, but then, um, as I say, focused solely on hospitality, moved into other areas such as um, the sales data um, I talked about, such as building a model of on-trade performance so that suppliers can understand how their um, products are doing versus the rest of the category. Um, so a whole range of services, um, but as I said, really at the start, all about data and insight. That's what drives us along as along with that passion for hospitality. Yeah, amazing. Well, like I say, I, I love being able to go over here from thinking to knowing. Uh, any any particular, uh, thinking of your career, I suppose, any particularly memorable pieces of data or surprises that have come out? Because I guess most of these things are sort of incremental changes, but have you ever been shocked and gone, my goodness, I never knew that? Um, yes, I think is the short answer. I mean, we're, obviously, we're, we're in a fundamental shift at the moment. So that's that's interesting because generally things are, are smaller step changes. Um, but um, there's always things that, that surprise you. I mean, when we do... We ask consumers all the time about lots and lots of different things and we ask business leaders. And as you say, we we turn from, I suppose, our own hypothesis and what those things might be to what people actually say. And um, yeah, almost on a daily basis, there are things that you think, I didn't didn't quite expect that to come through. Um, But often when you think about it, when you dig deeper into the data, there is is a kind of logic behind it. But I guess that's why we use data to drive what we talk about. It's not just my opinion or somebody else within CGA has an opinion. It's very much the data that we let um, and try to let tell the story, really. Mm. Well, that seems to be the world we're in at the moment, isn't it? Scientists and data uh, yeah, controlling things or at least trying <laughs> to control things. Uh, yeah. The fine seesaw. Uh, yeah, okay, so right. yeah, go on. Sorry, just on that point. I think it, we've always been recognised the fact that, particularly in hospitality, um, the skill of the operators as well. So I think that data can really help inform, but it's very much, you know, we see it as sitting alongside and helping um, operators make informed decisions. It's it's um, very much a kind of harmonious relationship we see. Okay, perfect. So uh, when I saw you chat, it was obviously, like I say, pre-lockdown. You were very much looking at the state of the industry, what had happened over the last uh, couple of years, but I guess some some forecasts of, of where we were going. And I, and I want to touch on that, I guess, because I think it's relevant in sort of, yeah, post-pandemic, which we'll sp- talk about in a minute. It's sort of slightly related to what was happening beforehand. And, it, it, you know, your data was showing that restaurants really had been uh, on, a, on a roller coaster, um, albeit there was a change in confidence. So can you just chat a little bit around, yeah, what, what you'd observed uh, in the early parts of this year yeah sure i mean as you say um it seems a long time ago now doesn't it yeah, Almost it does. a, different, a different lifetime but yeah in essence um in terms of the key trends we were seeing at that point um we tracked for a long time sort of eating and drinking out frequency through our consumer research that was remarkably stable so even though there were pressures in other parts of the economy um you know you looked at the BRC results over over Christmas from the retail consortium, and it was the toughest Christmas um, in a, in a generation. Um, you look at new car sales; they were challenged, but actually, people continued to eat and drink out, and I think really valued the experiences they get in the sector. So, sort of having those great experiences they get out of home were prioritised over just buying stuff. So that was the kind of positive, really. The demand was there on the supply side, as, as you've touched on. There were a number of changes, so. We sort of reached peak restaurants, um, and obviously there's been this huge, to put it in context, this huge growth, particularly in the casual dining sector, um, over a number of years. So that it was always going to reach a peak. Uh, we obviously saw sadly some casualties in that space and some CVAs, but actually the biggest shift was amongst independents. So the managed restaurant numbers held up. Uh, we're still seeing growth at the sort of premium end of that. So people like Dishume, Ivy Collection, and um, we're continuing to open sites. Um, but the shape of the market was undoubtedly changing. We'd seen in the pub sector a sort of sustained decline in the number of pubs, and they were particularly drink-focused pubs, um, a lot of least and tenanted, either from operators switching tenure, um, or equally these were some of the ones that were, were sort of closing the doors for good. Um, so we'd seen a lot of trends like that. On the consumer side, um, things like health were seen as important. Um, sustainability became a real, real core um, driver for consumers. Um, premiumization is something we talk about a lot and we saw it a lot in, in drink. So whether that be people switching from sort of standard lager into premium or world or craft, um, trying to think of other things off the top of my head, on the go was a key driver. So sort of QSR, coffee, that kind of convenience being sort of time precious as consumers, um, that was sort of driving growth in that area 
and also the sort of premium element of that as well. So the sort of premium QSR, fast casual brands that were emerging from there. So uh, it was, a, I wouldn't say it was an easy sector to operate in. I don't know you operate in the sector, so you'd you'd probably have a view on that. But I think there were, there were people that were doing really well in the sector. The demand was there. As I say, there was shifting supply. The shape of the market was changing and there were closures in parts of the market. But ultimately, there was opportunity for people that, that um, to succeed. And confidence was the question you also touched on. Optimism in the sector was actually reasonably buoyant. Um, it took a huge dip after the EU referendum, um, but it sort of climbed back to a stage where we had around sort of 60% of operators through our business leader research were sort of positive about the market as a whole. Actually, 83% of them were positive about their own business prospects. So, you know, pre pre the um, coronavirus pandemic, there was actually a reasonable amount of optimism in the sector. Yeah, there seemed to be a bounce, I think, didn't there? It was, it was the highest it had been for four years. Uh, and I guess that was post sort of Brexit clarity and post election uh, clarity. I think we were all excited thinking, OK, at least, you know, whatever our opinions were on on Brexit and politics, at least we were, you know, we didn't have a hung parliament anymore. And we, we were excited to have five years of stable government and a definite direction in Brexit. So it did feel that yeah, around February time, prob- probably, and your data reflected it, that, yeah, it was the most positive sentiment for, for quite some time, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you've you've um, hit the nail on the head from our perspective in terms of the drivers there. I think um, it's very much um, that clarity, and as you say, whichever side of the political spectrum, the people wanted some clarity, um, and whether they wanted to, most of the leaders actually didn't want to leave the EU, but at least we had a path that people could work towards and a, and a you know a time frame. Um, so yeah, optimism was reasonably good, and it's funny we did a webinar. Um, just near St Paul's um, to sort of share the results with some of the business leaders that completed the research, and it was just at the time when you know the, the outbreak had obviously happened um, in China, and we were starting to see um, some of the outbreaks in Italy as well. But it, it, I don't think any of us could have predicted quite the impact that was going to have at that point. No, and there was a certain irony that one of the things that was a concern at that time, I saw that seventy cent seventy seven percent of people were concerned about labour shortages uh, mm. in the market, whereas now we seem to have swung to being concerned about two million people uh, being laid off. Had that had that labour situation been getting worse for a period of time? It had, yeah. I mean, the um, there were concerns. I mean, there's a lot of people, um, both operators and also um, you know, Kate at UKH, push hard on building careers in hospitality. Um, as a sector, um, that's sometimes been a challenge and there were particular staff shortages at sort of back of house, um, sort of finding skilled workers. Um, and that was sort of touched on some of the immigration policy around that time of um, what the points-based system was going to be and was it going to value hospitality skills? And the reality was it didn't look like it was going to. But so there was concern at that point around absolutely the availability of staff, um, post um britain leaving the, the eu um and also about yeah how how those skilled staff could be um, brought into the sector and retained but you're right now fundamentally there's a huge concern over what the shape of the market's going to be post lockdown what that's going to mean for unemployment in the sector um, there is still a concern actually amongst operators about retaining good quality staff so like nearly half of them in our recent survey said they were concerned about keeping good staff, obviously, um, with what's happened and a lot of people on furlough, um, some of those people may look to other sectors um, within the current landscape. So that is a concern because you know, people have invested in these people, they have good quality um, people and they've spent, I know we, we've talked to operators, they spent a lot of time um, really engaging with those staff during this period. Um, and it's also one of the things that I think people are going to focus on in the reopen is that sort of cultural side of things. We won't have the lever of you know, big wage increases when people, um, when we open the doors again and people can return to the workplace, but sort of engaging around culture, values, um, and making them enjoying enjoyable places to work, I think is where people are going to focus. So, but you're right, we have sort of pivoted from that. Are we going to be able to get enough people to, how many jobs can we save? It's a, it's a really, really tough time for, to state the obvious for the sector. 
Mm, absolutely, yeah. We'll come back to uh, some of the things that are happening, sort of employment-wise, uh, post-COVID shortly. But one of the things you did predict, which you, you must uh, pat yourself on the back for even more now, is you did say that uh, delivery was was sort of thriving and starting to dominate the market even more, and that seems to have obviously, uh, in the absence of being able, you know, the, the on-trade deliveries become huge. Did you have any data around, I suppose, the complexity of that? Because most operators seem to have sort of dipped their toe into, you know, Deliveroo and Uber and the, and the, and the like of those but but they are you know quite expensive uh, commissions to be paid and there's a lot of people debating whether it's actually a viable addition to the business uh, any thoughts on that yeah I'd agree frankly I think um, when we've asked business leaders about it um, we asked them a couple of years ago about it and generally there was a there was a view that people need to do it but when we talked about the pros and the cons there was a general overall negative sentiment towards it. I think that did start to shift. So the last survey we did um, in in sort of February around about this topic, we did see that there was a more positive sentiment towards delivery. I think still concern over uh, the costs from third parties and also the fact that you are literally giving your brand to somebody else to deliver. So um, I don't think those issues and concerns have been overcome, but I think people had seen the sales growth and had recognised that it was an important channel to embrace and one that couldn't be ignored. So we we sort of track, um, we don't publish it, but we do track delivery and we've seen that grow, as you say. Um, so it's not uh, it's not through any sort of crystal ball gazing that I can pat myself on the back. We've seen that grow. We know in, amongst certain operators, it's a really, really important part. And obviously through what's happened of late with the lockdown, the only channel realistic that people have been able to embrace, uh, we know it's become a priority for certain people. I think some operators initially were going to do a big focus on delivery and then actually decided not to, um, mainly through concerns about staff safety. Um, but I know that as we focus on the reopen, many of those, particularly large operators, are are looking to re-embrace delivery. So I, it's absolutely here to stay. I think there are still some ongoing challenges, as you say, around uh, the high cost. Um, but consumers have embraced it pre-lockdown. They've embraced it even more during lockdown. And I think it's absolutely here to stay. It's just how you how you execute it correctly, and obviously how individually or as a sector we can we can challenge some of those third party costs. Yeah, I think it's hugely challenging, and I think if you're a, if you're a good sort of restaurant a la carte style food and certainly historically where you'd probably designed your kitchen and your staffing levels around a certain capacity in your restaurants however many covers you could sit it was it was quite hard to add any additional capacity to add delivery but also it sort of ruins the vibe of the restaurant if there's lots of motorbikes and high-vis <laughs> jackets and, and, and yeah. food going out over the past I guess if, if all of a sudden we're only operating at maybe 50% of our covers then it might be a great model but it seems to be particularly useful for people who are building it in at the sort of concept stage with a few high margin uh, items and, and maybe a separate kind of entrance to the kitchen where stuff can go out. But then I guess even more so is these sort of dark kitchens and, and you know, places purely set up for delivery. Has there been any data around that sort of growth in the market as well? Um, we've seen it. We don't actually measure it, to be to be honest. Um, but you're right. Um, you know, people are looking at that. Um, I think um, there's polarised opinions, I think, on on the value of, of this sort of dark kitchen model. Um, in terms of obviously what people have done is spent a lot of time building their existing brands and you know ideally would leverage that through their existing um, sites um, but we know it's obviously it's it definitely a growing trend we just don't unfortunately have a data point on it um, yeah. but I think you're right the whole delivery thing I think you know I was going to talk about it later depending on where this conversation go but the, the sort of omni-channel um, we've seen it in delivery We've actually seen a growth in drinks delivery. So a lot of people have been either sort of ordering direct from from breweries. People like Cloudwater Brewery have been doing deliveries, um, Shindig up in the northwest. Um, But also operators have been doing drinks delivery. And I think um, people have been dabbling in that previously. So be it one, we're doing sort of cocktail deliveries. But I think that's something that um, we we may see continue. So people will get a restaurant quality meal delivered um, with some of the drinks to sort of recreate that. That, that out of home experience at home and that might yeah. be one of the things that we see see continuing yeah it's so challenging because re- restaurant quality i know there's a lot of restaurateurs who would argue that if you stick a, a meal in a box on the back <laughs> of a motorbike and whiz it around town it, it probably doesn't arrive I, yes, as a restaurant quality meal no i couldn't yeah. agree more and i think it's interesting that it's so it's not just about delivery i suppose when you think about omnichannel it's also 
you know, we've seen um, of late people like, um, you know, Wagamama and um, Nando's offering sort of recipes so people can recreate at home, which again, might not be exactly this, not going to be exactly the same quality you would necessarily get at a restaurant. It certainly doesn't have the, the ambience that, that goes with that experience. Um, but also people like Coat, Six by Nico, have obviously been delivering meals that you can cook um, you know, yourself at home. Um, so I think to me as a consumer, it's it's not the same, but it is interesting that people are obviously missing those experiences they can get out of home and are trying to recreate them in some form at home. So I do think yeah. that will yeah. continue to an extent. Yeah, I agree. I think there's an inevitability and I think it's really tricky as a restaurateur to get to get your head around it. I appreciate you you, you sort of represent all, all sectors of it. But at, at my level, you know, we've seen it over the last couple of years, incredibly difficult trading environment. As you say, demand was there, but probably supply was up. So it was just spreading uh, a, a fixed demand over more more operators. But I think with the likes of, you know, Amazon Prime and, and Netflix and Disney Channel and all of these things that people can have at home, you know, people were, were automatically thinking, well, we might as well just, you know, stay in and, and, and watch something decent on the telly. But add to that now the fear around uh, yeah distancing and uh, yeah being in confined spaces i think it's going to be a an interesting space for the winter but i do think it's it's hard to operate and we, we bought a couple of scooters and a car a couple of years ago and tried to add delivery to one of our businesses and do it ourselves and it was just really complicated and the time involved in taking meals you know across town i i, I sort of struggle to see well yeah people like delivery don't make any money and i can see why because it's a it's a complicated sector it um, is. what one of the other trends that you spotted, and um, I kind of, yeah, I suppose it's slightly the power of data, but I've been a little bit frustrated in the last 10 days. But if we look around the sort of health and ethics of food, um, that, you know, a bit more on flexitarianism and veganism, which was great, and people caring about the provenance of food, which is all stuff that I love. But mm. then you see the queues outside of McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken in the last 10 days, and people queuing up for two hours. Uh, to buy, obviously, what is obviously an incredible burger because I don't want McDonald's to, to sue me. Um, <laughs> so, how do you yeah, how do you deal with the juxtaposition a, a, around some of that? Is are we basically seeing huge growth in what is still a very small section of the market, or is it something else? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, uh, yeah, obviously there are there are people that have been missing various brands, and and you know, obviously McDonald's is is uh, is part of some people's repertoire, and and therefore we have seen queues we've seen the same in retail haven't we with these big queues at ikea so i think there's a sense that people do want to to return to some sort of normality and maybe that's what's um that's what's highlighting that in in this instance i think you're right about that kind of juxtaposition between that and health and ethics sustainability we see those as and as you're aware i talked about it at the presentation i did at um, hrc we see those as really key drivers at the moment um, so and actually sort of through the current period, I think those are being magnified, if anything. So there is a divergence. I mean, we've long asked consumers about their healthy lifestyles, and then we look at where they go to, and that doesn't always come through in, in where they're eating and drinking. But there's a general intent, I think, from lots of people to lead a more healthy lifestyle. Um, we have asked um, during the lockdown what people have been doing with their time, and one of the things has been a focus on health. So obviously, there's been a lot of concern about health because it's a global health pandemic. But nearly, I think, 39% of consumers have been focusing more on their personal health and exercising more, and are expecting that to continue. So I do think that health as a driver is important, but not it's not everyone. And also, yeah. we we are not healthy all the time. I think the flexitarianism thing you, you talked about and sustainability. I think again, these were really these were key drivers. Um, what business leaders are telling us they're focused on longer term and also what consumers are telling us. These are absolutely core now. And I, so I don't think they're going to go away. If anything, um, sort of the ethics and sustainability, I think, have, again, as I said, been magnified during this period. We've seen um, lots of brands in the space do a lot of good work, for example, on the ethics side. So, you know, people like Leon with their Feed Britain initiative, you know, Brewdog with the hand sanitizers, examples like that, many, many examples. And I think hospitality's done that very much with uh, genuine intent, not for PR and marketing purposes in the main, um, because I think there's a lot of good people in the sector. And consumers get that. Actually, we're asking consumers about the sort of brands and, and they would engage with longer term. And I think 75% of them said that they would go and visit brands that they think have done the right thing through this process. So, I agree. There's a kind of odd dichotomy of 
of health and, and some QSR brands. But um, I think generally that health sustainability ethics it, it, from what we're seeing in our consumer research are were important pre-lockdown and I think have only been exaggerated during this period. Well, I certainly hope that is the case. I guess one of my frustrations is that we launched a drive-through. Only one of my venues has got a car park, and it's only got six bays. So we turned it into a little drive-through, and it means you can order and pay online, and get you get sent a text with a bay number to pull into at a certain time, um, and then we pop out and we pop your food straight in the boot. So it was completely contact kind of ordering process, uh, and it's a great quality uh, burger and some some chips and a salad for a tenner. Mm. And I have not needed to employ any police officers to manage my queue <laughs> at any point. <laughs> during that process disappointingly so it's been uh, a little bit of a frustration but I do agree that I think the sector has held its head very high and I think if you work in hospitality you're right it's not about PR and marketing it's fundamentally you know you you, hospitality is a reflex you know you you have this uh, innate desire to make other humans being sort of lives better and and automatically if you see someone you offer them a a beer or a cup of tea or and you look after them and I think we've done the same and, and I'm hoping that we come out the other side of this pandemic with a little bit more respect because we've always been known as this sort of you know stop gap and something that people do in between university and getting a real job and all that kind of stuff but but i think the industry has yeah has, has done a lot of good stuff and, and and the same as the nhs i think they've got a lot more respect coming out the other side of it and i, and I hope that we have as well yeah um, i think i think that is the case yeah yeah i've got to ask what how do you decide which way round to present a number? Because, for example, just then you said 39% of people have improved their health and fitness during the lockdown, which to me means that sort of, you know, 61% haven't. And how do you decide which way round to present that data? That's a good question. That I think some of it is, I, I mean, the, I, I don't actually have a full breakdown of that question, but some of it will be people who haven't uh, changed their behaviour. So there'll be a right. portion of people that were already exercising um, and obviously a portion of people that perhaps weren't exercising very often and their behaviour will be unchanged. Um, there'll be a smaller percentage that have have exercised less. So therefore, that you know, on balance, you would say, and I don't have the, the stats, but if it's 39% are exercising more, it might be for argument's sake, um, 50% are doing it the same, and therefore there's quite a small percentage that are doing it less. Um, so we would focus on, you know, the overall net behaviour. Therefore, would be that you know, on balance, more people are exercising more than are exercising less. So that's how we would tend to do it. Um, okay. But biggest... often there are nuances within the data, and, and that takes a bit of exploration as well. Yeah. Okay. I think it was um, it was good the fact that Boris said you know you can go out for an hour's day to exercise was uh, was great, and it wasn't just yeah you can go out for an hour a day and just get some fresh air. It was specifically you know go out and exercise. It's good for your mental health. So I, I hope there's been. A change there and i and i hope consumers care a little bit more about what they buy it but I, the, 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 it's a bit like i used to run health clubs and and when i ran health clubs you used to have to have a swimming pool and people would come in and go have you got a pool have you got a pool and you'd show them the pool knowing that nobody ever used the pool people just don't <laughs> use it and it's the same with healthy food it's like yeah have you got you know got some really healthy food yeah it's absolutely there but most people when they sit down all order a burger and chips you know it's always yeah, the, the yeah, biggest we, selling we, things it's funny we, we talk about that ourselves actually because I think not having those healthy options is a turn off. But you're right. A lot of people, when they're in venue, will actually choose the, the slightly less healthy option or the more indulgent option, because often it is about enjoying yourself. And therefore, um, I think it depends on what part of the sector you're in. If you're on an everyday on the go sector, people might go for more healthy options more regularly. But if it's a, you know, an indulgent weekend treat with friends, then you may look on the menu for and think, oh, that's got a great range of healthy options. But we know... As I said, when consumers, we look at the sales of products that are sold, but also what consumers tell us they actually had, uh, it doesn't always carry through. So I said, no. really, we have we have the right intent, but it doesn't always it doesn't always carry through, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I guess that's why data is is part of a decision making process, basically in what in what you sell, isn't it? And uh, yeah, you it's it's also the art, not just the science of uh, of hospitality, I suppose. Which Absolutely, is which is the point I made earlier. It's not the data can't make all the decisions for you. It's it's very much an art, and it has to go hand in hand with operator skill. But as I said on that specific point around health, I think not having healthy any healthy options on your menu uh, would reduce your footfall. Um, but like you say, it might not translate into sales, but it's, it might indirectly because it gets people yeah. into your site to, to then have the burger and chips. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, we put posts out on social media about a new sort of, you know, plant-based offering and it will probably get the most interaction and, and the most likes. But in sales terms, you know, it's absolutely negligible, but it's, um, it certainly shouts about what you do. And I think ethically, it's, it's very important. 
to show that you've got those options basically so um moving away then so so that was the sort of pre-lockdown uh scene during lockdown well let me touch on this very briefly but i saw you had some some data around sort of people's behavior uh and, and that was mainly through looking at sort of footfall and and, and traffic is is that right i saw some charts basically that showed <laughs> and it was you different like- it was it sort of london was nowhere near the same level as sort of region it looked like the regions had dropped to maybe you know by 90 percent of normal footfall but but london was more like maybe 70 percent is is that fair and where were you getting that information from um it's it's partly fair i think so basically that was something we, we're working in in strategic partnership with wireless social um what they do because they're a wireless wi-fi provider um they're still picking up a lot of presence data so they can do a like-for-like comparison of what for footfall was like pre-lockdown what, what's happening during lockdown and obviously it'll be useful to measure that um as we come through the other side so actually they were seeing in lots of areas sort of drops footfall around 80 percent and the kind of london chart i think you're referring to what what we saw there was sort of in the city itself um sort of footfall was down around 80 percent so in the sort of square mile and canary wharf it was 80 percent plus but actually in the sort of london villages um the sort of reduction in footfall was was lower so it was around 60 percent down um so there's a sense that definitely people are staying local obviously that's been part of the messaging um, through this period through the government but that's sort of coming through in the data so we're not obviously got lots of people walking around the high streets at the moment unless you need to be there because you're a key worker um, it'll be interesting to see how that changes once retail starts to open um, so I think that's going to be one one to a really interesting one to watch and that's sort of why we're really happy to be in that that sort of partnership with with wireless social um, yeah um, so yeah we've seen that on on the footfall and then in terms of other sort of lockdown behaviour, we've, we've sort of captured through consumers. Um, they've obviously uh, been doing a lot of virtual socialising. So people have been using Zoom and the house party app and things like that, um, using delivery, which we've already touched on. So I think to me, I've been asked a few times if you see that as a threat. Uh, I actually think it's it's not. I think what we're largely seeing is people are trying to replicate, as we touched on earlier, really some of those experiences they get out of home at home. And I think generally they're a kind of poor substitute. So I think people are looking to return to the sector. Um, you know, we're asking consumers about intent at the moment in GB. And we've got around 22% of people that say they're, they're kind of ready to go back to the sector as soon as it, they're allowed to. Um, but the vast majority of people are going to do it with caution. They're going to need some reassurance um, because obviously there are sort of ongoing concerns amongst the general public um, about the, the pandemic. Okay. So just before we move into that sort of, yeah, what things are going to look afterwards, I guess one of the things we've been doing is looking at other countries that are ahead of us. I've done a couple of podcasts with operators in Shanghai just to sort of hear about their experience. What what other countries are you looking at? Is it is it just China or have you got some other data and what's the data showing that's happening with regards to sort of bouncing back? Um, it's not just China. We did some a specific survey on China because um, obviously they had a full lockdown and that in so we picked up in different regions the sort of reopen and what consumer behaviour was doing. We thought it was interesting to not just ask in GB what consumers say they're going to do, because obviously that can change, um, but to see what had actually happened. Um, but we've also done research in the US as well. So we have um, uh, you know, a team um, really focused on the US out, out in America, but also um, in GB that support that team. So we, that's a big growth area for us. <clears throat> we also do research in other countries as well. Um, but the, the China stuff was um, obviously the stuff I shared with you previously. Um, and actually, if you look across what consumers in GB are saying they like to do, what we've seen in China and what we've seen in the US, there's a lot of parallels. So, for example, in China, um, we conducted some research about a month after the sector reopened and about half of consumers have returned to the sector. So there, was, um, there wasn't necessarily a rush back. Uh, there was a kind of cautious and steady return. Um, it tended to be younger people that came back quickest. And the people that previously went regularly were also the people that returned to the sector quickest. So that sort of loyal core came back fastest. Um, generally, we're seeing not only sort of, uh, cons- sort of footfall and, and visit levels down, but we are also seeing spend slightly down as well. So in China, the average spend at the moment is about 9% lower than it was pre-COVID. Um, uh, but um, you're obviously going to continue to track that. So generally, there was a cautious return to the market, I think, is in summary. I think we also saw that people were staying local, to our to our point earlier. 
um, and people are absolutely needing the sort of reassurance about what operators are doing to ensure their safety. So um, in China, they've got a green light QR code, but it's also about personal distance um, and it's also about things like hand sanitizers and hygiene. So you know, consumers are obviously going to need that, that as I say, reassurance that the venues they're going to are, are taking their health seriously. And I think the other element that came out is about communication of that. So doing it is great, but um, ultimately you need to tell consumers what you're doing. And I think, again, there's some great examples of what operators are sharing um, their, their plans. And I think that's really, really important to have that transparency with consumers. Mm. That's quite a scary number that, that you know, so trade was fundamentally 50% down or, for, or, you know, people going out 50% down for even four weeks after reopening, which rear re- sort of uh, affirms, I guess, what a lot of operators are saying in the UK is it's all well and good being told that legally you can open, but financially, does it make sense to open? Yeah, uh, yeah that's that's quite a, a scary number. It is quite scary. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing some recovery. Um, you know, it's it started slow, and you know, in the US, for example, sales are, are nearly forty percent lower than they were. So at the end of end of May, and um, they're about thirty nine percent lower than they were um, pre COVID. So you're right, that is quite scary. Um, but when we're asking about sort of consumer intent, I think people will return to the market. It's just going to take time. But you're right, revenues are going to be lower. We know there are substantial financial challenges already because of no revenues other than by delivery potentially um so it's you know it's great that we have a, a reopen to focus on within within gb but obviously it by no means means that operators are out of the woods as, as you'll well know it's uh, um it's going to be a, a kind of slow road and there's going to be a need for ongoing support from government um and uh, yeah ultimately it's going to take time i think for us to see those frequency levels that we saw pre-lockdown return yeah so one of the the stats that didn't necessarily surprise me but i thought it was uh it was it was a little bit scary you know turning towards sort of reopening was that a hundred percent of startups under three years are very pessimistic about the next 12 months i was like wow that's some data there isn't it very pessimistic and it's everybody but particularly in the startup market are you seeing some of the established operators i, I suppose it's your thoughts on you know who's who's going to come out of this is it is it the established players with you know bigger bigger balance sheets where they can maybe leverage some cash is it the more nimble sort of independent what's your thoughts on that um it's making prediction is always a challenge yeah <laughs> um, but i think i think there's a little so not to sit on the fence too much i think there's a little bit of both in there i think i, I do i do have concerns about smaller operators who don't necessarily have the same access to funds you know the same teams um that can um you know make key decisions around you know, pricing strategies around marketing strategies etc um uh, so i think operators that um can't access those funds and we know for the reopen um the leader research told us that people are going to need around nine percent of annual turnover to reopen a site so just being able to open isn't isn't enough they're going to need funds to do that so i do worry about people's ability to access those funds obviously the bigger operators can um you know, speak to their funds um to their investors um, they can refinance um, so, uh, yeah, I do have concerns. That said, uh, there's huge innovation in the sector. And I think that nimble um, sort of agile behavior that some of those display and that great entrepreneurialism, I think some of those will have the finger on the pulse with their consumers. We know some of them have pivoted really well into delivery. Um, so some of the independent lease and tenancy pub operators I know are actually doing reasonable amount of sales in that space. Um, so I don't think it's going to be kind of black and white on, on who. Um, but we've seen over a number of years that decline in the independent sector. So I talked about managed restaurants. Um, those numbers have have held up, even though we've sort of seen sort of peak restaurant numbers. So, uh, yeah, I do have fears for some of those smaller operators. Um, obviously, some of the larger operators are going through CVAs and so on, because the other aspect is if you're a pub co with freehold, it's arguably easier than if you've got sort of obviously long term rent agreements that uh, you need to renegotiate or get out of that that number that sort of jumped out there for me that nine nine percent of annual turnover to reopen so you're saying if you're a million pound turnover business it's going to cost you ninety thousand pounds to open the doors is that right and you're saying they've got to spend that you know literally you know before they before they generate any revenue i think that's necessarily before and some of it will relate to sort of cash flow but that's that's what came out when we asked business leaders um about the the funds that they would ultimately need um so yeah it's it's quite 
quite a substantial number, and some of that will be, as I say, to, to re-engage with staff that are going to come off furlough. Obviously, the corona job virus, coronavirus job retention scheme has been a bit of a lifeline for many, but you know, having to pay those people with reduced revenue numbers. So some of it, I think, is projecting forward. Uh, we weren't really explicit in the question about the fine detail of it, so it'll be how people have interpreted it to a certain extent. Um, but but ultimately, it comes back to that point that yeah, just being able to open doesn't mean everything's back to normal. Um, it's going to be an ongoing challenge, sadly, for the for the sector and for many operators. Mm. And certainly from a support perspective, you know, the biggest thing that I think came out was going to be around uh, rent or either that you know where supporters were cried or where the biggest challenge was going to be was going to be clearing this sort of backlog of rent demands. Uh, I think it was last night that the government came out with this uh, code of conduct, which has been largely, uh, I'm going to say ridiculed um, in the press, <laughs> in the press today. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's probably the word. Uh, yeah. It, is, is that fair that, you know, rents is, is one of the biggest challenges that people are talking to you about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it came out loud and clear in, in the business leader research. As I said, the, the furlough scheme has, has, has been a significant help during this period, and I think many operators wouldn't have survived without that. But this rent challenge continues to be a hot topic. That came out loud and clear in our research. Obviously, there's lots of people focused on different ideas, such as national timeout. Um, a lot of people are more expert on this than me, but we also know a lot of individual negotiations are going on between operators and landlords, and we've seen the CBAs. But I think unless this gets sorted, you know, we're going to have reduced revenues when we open. We know that. That's what our data is clearly telling us. We look at other markets. That's what we can see. So whether that's around turnover-based rent, how we square that circle, I think, is is a huge challenge. And I, I agree. I think the government code of conduct, I think, to me, doesn't go far enough. Um, so I think we know it's a hot topic. We know people like UK Hospitality, others in the sector like, like JD are really focused on this. And I think it needs to be because, you know, we're sort of seeing in terms of projections of the size of the market that the market could be sort of 15, 20, 30 percent smaller out the other side. And it obviously employing the number of people it does over three million people in the sector. If if we don't get some help around that as a sector, I, I do think those numbers could be could be worse. So you know, there's a lot of people focused on that that are so more qualified than me. But I do think it's fundamentally a huge issue that needs addressing. Yeah, I mean, it feels logically that we just need to go into this sort of temporary period of, of hibernation, and uh, and that we, you know, we, we and that's for everybody. That's for the landlords and the, and the tenants and the customers, and, and everybody pauses, and then everybody's given the chance to come back. The, the, the concern at the moment is that yeah, once this rent moratorium is over, that the landlords are going to be very aggressive. They're just going to change the locks. They're going to take restaurants that quite possibly people have spent you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, on, and, and take them back. And I guess the the motivation for the landlords to do that is because because they think it's going to be easy for them to flip that on to another operator and that demand's going to be there. Whereas I think we probably feel in the industry that demand isn't going to be there. And, and I suppose to our advantage, you know, it isn't going to be a case of simply, you know, lot, lots of operators queuing up uh, to step into these spaces. Uh, that would be backed up then. You're, you're, not, you're not expecting there to be this, uh, yeah, this huge surge. I mean, you'd like to think that the VCs have had their fingers burnt a little bit, you know, in, in just in the last couple of years, let alone during this period of lockdown so yeah your, your expectation is some sort of contraction in the market isn't it? yeah absolutely a contraction i mean it's it's just how big um and sadly there will be businesses that don't reopen um and you're right i think you know longer term i'm sure some of these areas will will return um you know we, we don't know the full impact of the sort of working from home model and what that will do to london numbers and so on um but maybe prime sites will be able to be flipped but the demand for those sites is definitely going to be lower um, it has to be. So, uh, yeah, I don't think in that respect, I think to me, landlords would be quite naive if they think they could just flip all those sites, um, not just in hospitality, but obviously retail is a challenge. So I think for me, it's it's about those landlords being fair, obviously negotiating with, with the sector and with individual landlords, but being recognising the fact that, yeah, that they may be better negotiating a rent that's fair for the long term than risk having um, you know empty, empty units with no rent. Yeah, seems like a seems like a no brainer. Uh, another one that shocked me was this: thirty one percent of of operators said they would keep some outlets closed permanently. So not even that they weren't going to reopen them on the fourth of July, but a, a permanent closure. Uh, was that correct? That is correct. Yeah, and I think um, you know, obviously, we've seen with the, the CVAs that have been announced. I think we're starting to see evidence of that. Um, so yeah, you know, 
as you say, nearly a third are, are planning to not open certain certain venues. Um, uh, so talking a bit earlier on about things surprised me, I think that didn't massively surprise me. Um, as I said, we did talk about predictions about the size of the sector, and you know that that sort of ballpark is 20 30 percent smaller which is you know hugely significant um and it is yeah. i think you yeah. know, it shouldn't be undervalued given the contribution to employment and and obviously the treasury that the sector provides massively massively yeah i was uh chatting to chris gumble from uh, brew house and kitchen a couple of days ago who was saying that i think we pay something like 38 billion pounds uh, a year into the uh, into the treasury and various sort of taxes and stuff like that and it, you know it's such a huge contributor isn't it and if you lose a third of that you know for the sake of for the sake of what what is probably only you know what's it national time out is, is nine months you know whatever support you offer it's it's negligible in in the scheme of what we actually generate for the economy on an annual basis yeah i agree and i think i mean the government has said stepped in in other areas and i think it just needs to step in again um is my is my personal view it's not necessarily a, um you know uh, to me it's just this whole pandemic obviously is um you know is a, is a tragedy for lots and lots of people but when you look at it on pure economic terms um i think the government's going to have the support to get through this and i agree from a um from a business rates from a a treasury perspective it's massive and it's a massive employer i think it's also important to the sort of social dna of our country as well you know without being too um sort of carried away i, I think it's you know a big part of who we are and the social currency and where we, we interact as, as human beings so i think we shouldn't underplay that but clearly the economic um uh, sort of impact will probably be felt felt first and hardest yeah, I do hope that there is some more recognition of that. I mean, I've I've had that frustration. You know, I've got a, a seafront venue, you know, right on the beachfront, and it's a it's a key reason for lots of people as to why they would, you know, choose to live, you know, locally to this area is because you can pop down and you can sit on a balcony, you can have a nice deer and a um, dinner and a, and a beer overlooking the ocean, and uh, you know, people come up and they go, oh, you know, it must be great. I presume the council are really supportive of you and that they help you out and, and look after you because you know you do such a great job, and you think, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> no, no, it is purely a can you get every penny um, that you possibly can out of you, and and this is again what Chris and I were chatting about with you know beer duties and wine duties and and all of the the rates and 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 VAT and all of the things we get hit with. Yeah, I agree. I think we you know we are part of placemaking. We know we are the reason to be on planet Earth is to spend some time with your family and friends and whether it's anniversaries or birthdays or business meetings, you know, all of these life events. Uh, or meeting meeting your future partner and you know ending up having kids and all of these things happen in in bars and restaurants and in hospitality and if there can be a bit more recognition of that and and a bit more support because it you know it feels like you know, there's been a lot of people speaking more publicly about margins of between three and seven percent, and and how it's unsustainable for the sector. And I was chatting to Mark Hicks, and you know, he he's obviously gone under um, during this period. And you know, back 20 years ago, you could make a decent living at in in restaurants, but it does feel like it's as hard as it's ever been, which is disappointing. Yeah, just from a societal perspective, we we can improve town centres and high streets and make them vibrant and, and energised again, but not if we're charged you know rents and taxes that make it impossible to operate. I couldn't agree more. I, I did a presentation actually at our, our own Peach 2020 conference around that, that very topic and, you know, the impact on how hospitality can help regenerate certain locations and, and particularly the role. Um, I grew up in a seaside town myself, but, um, you know, we've got some huge issues in our coastal communities. I think hospitality can be a real driver in those areas and it needs to be embraced like that and supported. And you're spot on. I think we know margins were thin even before this um, the lockdown. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot, a lot of ongoing support is going to be needed, and I think it, I think it's critical. Um, yeah. I think it makes financial and economic sense, but yeah, from all the reasons you've outlined and we've agreed on, I think it's that social side of things that shouldn't be shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, well, I'll let you know how it goes. I will be locked into uh, rent negotiations with my local council on, on very soon, and I, I hope they recognise that. Yeah, it's it's not just about money and people who work in hospitality you know rarely is that the primary motivation so so sort of looking at reopening then and we're a few weeks away from you know we, we still haven't been told we can definitely open but we're working towards this fourth of july date having had the little teaser of the 22nd of june a few days ago sort of kicked into the into the long grass um there's this debate around yeah you know it's all well and good being told you can open but should you um what's your understanding of the consumer you know is, is there a demand do they want to come back and I guess what's the difference between city centres and and more localised rural communities? Yeah, good question. I mean, yes, 
by large, people do want to come back. But as I mentioned earlier, they need that reassurance. Um, so I think it will be cautious. There is different segments of society who are in a slightly different mindset at the moment. Um, and there's sort of a chunk of people, as I say, about 22% that will come back. Some people are going to need some reassurance. There's, a, there's also a portion of people who will come back, but their frequency might be lower. So that's why overall our view is that net sort of footfall and net frequency of visit will be lower. Um, it's about what you can do, obviously, to reassure those people that it is safe um, and you know, to see those people re-emerge over time. So I think um, from our perspective and, and from what the data is telling us, yeah, we, we think it will be slow and steady in terms of, of that footfall returning. Um, I think there's no other way of looking at it. Um, but I guess the good thing is people do want those experiences. As I said they've been trying to replicate them at home. We think people will come back to the market. People are telling us they want to come back. Um, but obviously, you know, through, through what everyone's been through, it's understandable that people are going to be cautious. So as I said, it's partly going to be about putting in those necessary operational steps to reassure customers, but also communicating really clearly. And then I think over time, those consumers will return. Um, we know operators are, we talked about delivery earlier, but people are also looking at whether they maybe operate with a reduced menu and things like that. So I think the offer might be slightly different as well, as well as obviously um, the, the spacing that's going to be needed, um, whether that be two meter or one meter, uh, obviously to be to be confirmed. Um, but you're right. I think you know most people are excited. Both consumers and operators are excited about having a fourth of July to aim for, and I think for us that's really really exciting. But it's obviously not going to mean that everything's suddenly okay again. I think it's uh, but it's nice to have that date to focus on, and we can start getting back to some semblance of normality. Mm. So, you know, you're, you're looking and, and chatting to probably some of the bigger players in the industry and, and what they're doing. If you were sat and chatting, you know, to, a, to an independent with all of the sort of learning that maybe they can't necessarily access and afford to do the research, what, what advice would you give to, to sort of someone with maybe, a, you know, one site or, or a few sites with regards to, uh, to reopening any specific nuggets that you could uh, tell them to focus on? Yeah, I think, uh, I think obviously being uh, aware of, the obvious need for, for personal distance, um, hygiene, hand sanitizer. They, they seem obvious, but I think having them visible, um, telling consumers what you're doing, whether that's as they come in, uh, whether it's on your website, you know, reassuring them that your venue is a safe place to go. Um, I think there's a lot of people have already pivoted into delivery, and we talked a lot about that today, um, into drinks delivery. I think looking at those sort of omni-channel type experiences. So, you know, can you either deliver your... Uh, food in fridge form so that it can go straight into the oven can you show your recipe so just to increase that engagement with consumers um i think obviously understanding your own consumers so i've talked in sort of broad terms about consumers but you know, if your consumers are younger if they were regular visitors previously they may well come back quicker um and, and just talking to them you might not be able to sort of conduct wide consumer research but as they do come back or through your facebook sites your website try and get a feel for what your consumers are looking for um, and I think ultimately, we know it's such an adaptable sector. I think just continuing to offer those great experiences, it might seem slightly, um, well, it will be slightly different. Of course it will. Um, but I think there's, you know, seeing what Inception Group are doing around their ways of, of, of sort of embracing the uh, what they have to go through, I think it's really interesting with their kind of bee, uh, beekeeper outfits and so on. I think yeah, just understanding your own customers, recognising that consumers will be cautious about return and what reassurance you can give them, I think, um, is going to be fundamental. Um, but also looking at those different channels, you know, can you drive additional frequency by offering takeout or offering delivery, um, offering your recipes to just sort of create that ongoing engagement with your customers? Yeah. I was quite pleased to see uh, in, in you know sort of what what's the consumer actually looking for because I know in China again chatting to the to the guys that I interviewed over there, it, everybody had to be in masks. You know it was temperature checks as you came in. It was logged and you know the purpose perspex screens a bit of and and actually you know for me you know long term hospitality person who, who absolutely loves the sector and it's all about eye contact and smiles and 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 the thought I just wouldn't bother going to a restaurant if every, if I couldn't see people's smiles and I couldn't see their eyes and they all stood behind plastic and I had to sit in a sanitized plastic box I wouldn't bother I was quite reassured to see that what the consumer was looking for was actually the sensible stuff which is easy you know put the tables a bit further apart have sanitizer available more, you know more cleaning and distancing but they were less concerned about masks and and sort of improved 
you know, toilet facilities and stuff. And, and, I, and I hope that was a sort of reassurance of what, you know, significant number, I guess, of, of the British public are pretty sensible and, and rational. And, and I think, yeah, mass are less part of society here than I suppose they are in China. And some people will obviously be up in arms about that and upset about it. But I kind of figure that they're the people who are less likely to go out for dinner anyway. And actually, we should just focus on creating an amazing experience for the, the people who are perhaps a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and that's that real last point, I think, is really important that the sector is, you know, and these individual operators, the big operators offer great experiences. And I think to focus back, you know, as, as ever on those, as you say, that's what people are passionate about within the sector. That's what consumers ultimately want. And yeah, it would be diluted, I think, with face masks. That's my own personal opinion. It's, it's what's coming through in the data as well. So um, I think as consumers, we, we do just want to return to some form of normality. I mean, I think looking at some of the plans, I mean, the, I thought um, Oak Millins did a really good job in the press a couple of weeks ago showing how their venues would look, and they didn't look particularly sanitised. So I think that's that's the trick. Obviously, outdoor space, that's going to be easier. Um, but, yeah, you, you need to be able to sort of subtly change things, reassure customers, but not dilute the ultimately the fantastic experiences they get, which is easy to say. But I think ultimately, um, as you say, it's a, hospitality is a people business um, and offering that kind of warm, warm smile and warm embrace, even if it's two metres away or one metre away, I think is going to be fundamental to, to the long term success. And I, in that respect, I'm quite bullish about the sector because I know that it's adaptable and the consumer research we're seeing is that consumers will return. So I think it's important to remember that you'll need to plan and operators I know are planning their, um, their P&Ls. You know, in, in great detail with scenario A, B and C, um, you have to expect that revenues are going to be lower. Um, you can do what you can to mitigate that, but you'll always have to go to, have to budget for that um, and staff accordingly. Um, but ultimately, it, I think the sector will return. Um, I just hope that we have as many businesses still trading when, when we get through that period. Yeah, I think it's just a period of, of hang on tight and, and survive as long as you possibly can. You know, I'm in a seasonal part of the country. We very much rely on the summers. But so the winter for us is, you know, reduced opening hours. It's disappointing from a team perspective because, you know, if we, if we drop from maybe, you know, eight in the morning till 11 at night, seven days a week, and we almost need three teams to cope with those kind of hours. But if we drop down to maybe, you know, midday till 10, five days a week, potentially we only need one team. So, you know, I see us potentially losing two thirds of our team. And, and it's purely because normally we would make enough money in the summer to, to sort of sustain that team through the winter and we're not going to have that option which is desperately disappointing because there's so much talent and so much quality and so many people we've worked with for a number of years and I would love to see the furlough scheme extended you know particularly to our sector and, and, and maybe airlines and you know perhaps retail although retail has a bit of a boom around Christmas that I don't think we'll be having in the hospitality sector in the normal way but uh, yeah I guess it's batten down the hatches get through it and, and there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel if, if 30% of the industry has disappeared then when we do go back to normal i guess if you can get through it there is a period of opportunity for a while yeah no there will be and uh, i think that's 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 the hope that people have got to hang on to i think it's more than a hope i think that's the reality of it but it's obviously what back to that question over who's going to survive it's it's who's got the cash flow um, and the balance sheet i suppose to to get through that period whether you're an individual operator and, and many of those have obviously you know staked their houses and and you know uh, i can only imagine the sort of pressures that they must be going through but obviously hopefully as many as possible can can come through um it's uh it's desperately tough times but you know we've got to almost focus. i think the sector itself is pretty positive in the main um and i think ultimately it will return and you know people do want that social experience as we talked about they do want to go out with their friends and that's not going to change the pandemic hasn't yeah. changed that they're just concerned about their health and that's understandable <laughs> Definitely. Hospitality at the end of the day is thousands of years old. You know, it's like I said, it's a human reflex. You know, you open your door, you welcome somebody in, you give them something to eat and drink and uh, it will survive. It will continue. Uh, we are a very creative and adaptable sector that's been here for multi-generations and will continue to do so. It's just going to be tough for a while. You obviously will be continuing to monitor the data and do the analysis and provide some commentary. Where's the best place for people to go, Carl, to, uh, to, to keep abreast of that? Um, so I guess ultimately our website, um, we also have an e-zine, so anyone can sign up to that. So um, weekly we provide insights um, that, that people can, can, can read and, and absorb for free. Um, but yeah, ultimately our website, which is cga.co.uk, um, obviously feel free to get in touch with me um, and I'll do what I can to answer any questions. And, and through this period, we our plans are 
to continue to conduct consumer research because we know that sentiment is going to change. And we're continuing not just to speak to operators, but to conduct our business leader research. That provides often good ammunition for lobbying government um, on some of the real challenges that are facing the sector. Um, so we're going to continue to do that. We're also, in, in combination with Wireless Social, going to look at footfall. So whereabouts are people um, milling about, going back to work, spending their time? And that will help inform where to open, but also hopefully track the recovery. Um, and from a sales perspective, we're going to we're going to do that through Coffer Peach and our, our ethos bill. So, you know, for for us, um, you know, we're going to be focused even more on on you know making our data available during this period, so that you know our clients can navigate through it because it's it's such a fundamental shift that you know we, we can make certain predictions, but I think being agile, sort of understanding what your competitors are doing, understanding how the landscape's changing, is going to be fundamental at the moment. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's key. Good. All right. Well, I will put a link to uh, the website and contact details, and presumably they, people can sign up for that e-sign uh, directly on the on the website, can they? They can indeed. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's uh, it's grown exponentially actually through this period. Um, but um, yeah, it's I would say this, but I think it's really useful and it's yeah, great. Perfect. So by all means, yeah, hopefully we'll see see people sign up to that. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, thanks, uh, Carl, for sparing the time. I can see this having to be a sort of, you know, a reasonably regular thing to get the latest data and later latest analysis, probably a little bit shorter next time. But thanks so much uh, for going through it and, and sparing the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Sorry if I waffle too much, but that's why it was really useful and really interesting, Mark. Thanks for thanks for sharing the time. Yeah, no, 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 no criticism on you at the time. It's just <laughs> I think we need to cover the sort of the, the pre, the in and the post, whereas next time we can probably just do from this point onwards. And, yeah, uh, the, re- the yeah, recovery. It'll be nice to sort Thanks. of track the recovery and, and back to normal. Definitely. All right. Thanks so much. Good luck. Cheers, Carl. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. So there you have it. Carl is full of stats, data and insight. And I've personally signed up to hear more from CGA moving forwards. And I've popped a link in the show notes via humansofhospitality.co.uk so you can easily do so too. Just head to the website and pop Carl with a K in the search bar. And whilst you're there, please also sign up to the weekly newsletter from me where I will send you an update of new releases And if you can support the podcast financially, hit the Patreon button where all the revenue generated goes back into getting incredible guests and speaking to them on incredible kit so I can make this show even better. Thank you for your support and I will be back on Tuesday with a brand new episode.